The fight against IS from a US carrier. Our targets are up in the Mosul area, uh, as well as Raqqa, Aleppo, and the Euphrates River Valley. Trump's first 100 days and Harry's ready. Army Navy matches 80,000 people. Not only a huge social event, but a chance for veterans and serving personnel to meet up and have a bit of a catch up. The Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson says Britain could help the United States should it take further action against the Syrian regime. The US launched a strike on a Syrian airfield earlier this month after accusing President Assad of using poison gas to kill people in a rebel-held town. Well, Mr Johnson wouldn't say if parliamentary approval would be needed before Britain got involved. I think it would be very difficult if the uh, United States has a proposal to uh, have some sort of action uh, in response to a chemical weapons attack. And if they come to us and ask for our support, whether it's with uh, submarine-based cruise missiles in the med or whatever it happens to, to be, as it was the case back in, in 2013, in my view, uh, and I know this is also the view of the, of the Prime Minister, it'd be very difficult for us to say no. Well, the former leader of the Liberal Democrats, Lord Ashdown, thinks Mr Johnson's comments are irresponsible. In the end, the government has to be prepared to act quickly and sometimes, sometimes in rare exceptional circumstances. That means they may have to go ahead without the backing of Parliament. It's not the backing of Parliament that is, to me, the most important thing. It's the complete fact that you part company with international law and in many ways with rational action as well. Mr Johnson seems to make it up on the back of an envelope and then blurt it out. Well, for insight and analysis this week, I'm joined by Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, Paul Rogers. Good to see you to, uh, speak to you today, Paul. Uh, Parliament dissolves next week for the general election, which means parliamentary approval for any military action over the next few weeks would be uh, nigh on impossible, wouldn't it? Yes, it would be. And I think the assumption on Mr Johnson's part, although he won't actually say it at this stage, is that in an emergency, Theresa May would just act accordingly in her capacity as a continuing prime minister. And he made it clear, as you had in that clip, that it is her view as well, that it would be necessary, almost inevitable, that Britain would go along with Mr Trump. Uh, so I don't think we're, we're seeing this in terms of something which will require parliamentary approval, even if technically it certainly should. It would certainly give her a headache, though, the Prime Minister, wouldn't it? I think it would, but you've got to see this in a wider domestic political context. I think the Conservatives have decided that one of the weakest points on the Labour side is over defence, and therefore they're very happy to look particularly strong on defence. The real risk, I think, is actually at a political level are they overreaching a bit? Because there's been a lot of uncertainty in Britain among public opinion as to whether it is wise to expand the war. Uh, and so I think in a sense they're feeling their way on this, but all of this is being done with an eye to the, the forthcoming election, which is unusual, of course. We're dealing in, in, with very different circumstances. There is also the issue of just how Mr Trump might act if there is another attack. Uh, and it's not at all clear that it will be the same way as before and whether Britain will be required to go in. But at least Johnson is saying, you know, we're prepared to go in. He thinks that is politically advantageous to say at this stage in the election campaign. When you say it's not at all clear how America would react should there be another chemical attack, what do you think they might do? I would have thought that if there's another attack which is substantial and definitely down to the Assad regime, 
then the United States would act actually with even greater force because one of the key things that has come out of the Donald Trump period so far is a willingness to go for military action more than in the past. We've seen it with that cruise missile attack. We saw it with the use of the huge bomb in Afghanistan. We're seeing it with the additional troops going into Afghanistan. We've seen it in the report that just came out earlier today about Mr. Trump giving the Pentagon freer reign to move troops into both Syria and Iraq. And is that what you mean exactly when you say even greater force? No, I don't think there's any aim to put uh, sort of conventional forces to oppose Assad, but there would be probably more airstrikes, wider range of targets, and not just an airfield, which to some extent was symbolic. So I would expect, in fact, that if that did happen, and Assad may well do it to see what the result is, then Trump would actually be expect Britain to go along with it. And that, I think, could present a real dilemma for, for Theresa May in the run-up to the election. Mm, you, say, you say Assad may well do it to see what happens. S- supposing he did, do you think America is really going to ask Britain for help? It's symbolic. I mean, it's not necessarily militarily, let me be quite clear about that. But symbolism is very important here. And the two countries that have been closest to the United States in this very intense air war, which started in, what, August 2014, have been France and Britain. So I think Britain would certainly be there uh, as a country that would be looked on to provide uh, military support, but really for symbolic purposes to show that they're part of a coalition. Okay, Paul, stay with us. The US aircraft carrier, the George H.W. Bush, has sailed to the forefront of American military action in Iraq and Syria. This is the ship which launched some of the first airstrikes against Islamic State three years ago. Well, now she's back in the Gulf in support of Operation Inherent Resolve. Well, our reporter, Simon Newton, has this exclusive. Out of the inky blackness of the Arabian Gulf, two lights appear in the sky. Seconds later, an FA-18 Super Hornet lands on the deck, catching the arresting wire at 150 miles an hour and coming to a jarring halt in the length of four tennis courts. We're aboard the USS George H.W. Bush, one of ten Nimitz-class carriers in the US Navy's arsenal and the front line in America's air war on the so-called Islamic State. The commanding officer is Captain Will Pennington. So sometimes uh, there are pre-planned strikes after infrastructure, ISIS-held infrastructure, uh, and things like that. And other times uh, there are on-call events for close air support uh, for troops that are engaged in combat on the ground. Uh, The challenge with Mosul uh, right now is, as you're well aware, uh, it's moved to the western part of the city where the infrastructure is older, it's more narrow, uh, it's more difficult to get heavy ground equipment in there, and, and there's also a greater potential for collateral damage. The Bush has a crew of 5,000 and is loaded with 80 combat aircraft, more than half are FA-18s, Hornets and the latest Super Hornet, known affectionately as the Rhino. And you've flown missions over Mosul? I have, yes. And, and Raqqa as well? Yes, I've been over both. This 35-year-old pilot is a veteran of missions over Iraq and Syria. Known by his call sign Butters, he's been a Navy aviator for 11 years. And I've been involved with multiple instances of of close air support in close proximity to friendly troops um, where they are uh, are facing stiff resistance um, and then also specifically targeting mortar positions, things that uh, are directly affecting the the ability of the ground troops to to move forward. To date, the US-led coalition has carried out nearly 21,000 airstrikes, 12,500 in Iraq, just over eight in Syria. The RAF ranks second to the US, but the Americans have still launched four times the number of strikes as the rest of the coalition. The carrier strike group commander is Rear Admiral Kenneth Weitzel, 
a former F-14 pilot and Top Gun instructor. Yes, I mean, this is our primary uh, reason for being here is the destruction of ISIS. Uh, our targets are up in the Mosul area, uh, as well as Raqqa, Aleppo, and the Euphrates River Valley. So ISIS has been has moved has been beaten back from its original positions outside of Baghdad uh, back in 2014, and they've been pushed north to where they're basically holed up in uh, in very tight pocketed areas in Syria and Iraq. The Bush's busy deck, the next wave of strike fighters prepare to blast off into the night, catapulted to 180 miles an hour in just two seconds. For the pilots and crew, this is an intense seven-month deployment, operating around the clock over a complex and dangerous battlefield. Three years after she launched the first US airstrikes on IS, this carrier's firepower is once again crucial to the success of the ground war. The USS George H.W. Bush firmly back in the battle. Simon Newton for SITREP in the Arabian Gulf. Professor Paul Rogers, um, this was very much, or what we heard there, is very much about demolishing the enemy. How much thought is going on elsewhere for what happens next? It's very difficult to say because it is proving so difficult to dislodge ICE itself. I mean, the reality is we're now into the seventh month of the effort to clear Mosul, and it is uh, apparent that in the heart of western Mosul, uh, ISIS isn't just proving very, very difficult to dislodge. It has actually even regained some small districts. And I think this is one of the reasons why carriers like the USS George Bush have become so significant, because the United States and its coalition partners has really upped the ante in terms of using air power, even though there is the risk of collateral damage. There doesn't seem to be any other way for them to do it. Now, the seriousness about this is that the ISIS paramilitaries who are very willing to die, are taking major casualties among the Iraqi special forces. And those special forces are the groups that essentially are going to ensure the security of the state once ISIS goes into decline. One has this nasty feeling that ISIS is already moving to the next stage of an underground guerrilla war. So it's part of a bigger problem. And I think in these circumstances, there's very little thought being given at present to a sort of a peaceful outcome in Iraq. Because people who are really looking at it in detail in the defence ministry know that that's going to be very difficult to yes, achieve. Yes, because when you look at the kind of media reports of things that are put out there, you kind of assume that it's all it's all totted up at a certain point. They will be defeated. But then you're talking about this underground paramilitary right, yes. uh, war emerging. How do you see uh, the coming years in both of these countries, in Syria and Iraq? You have the overall problem that groups like ISIS and the spin-offs from al-Qaeda and the rest may be declined, they may be suppressed militarily, but the underlying reasons why they can get support, all the problems across the Middle East, it takes us half a program to go through them, hmm. are still there. They're not being addressed. And I think even if ISIS appears to disappear as ISIS, and the caliphate merely becomes a past symbol of what they could have achieved, I think they will still be there in a different guise. And this is one of the central problems for the military forces. This does not mm. seem to be amenable, finally, to a military solution. And bring into this Turkish airstrikes on Turkish fighters in Iraq and Syria complicates the situation further because they're a NATO ally. They are NATO ally. The Turks are very concerned about the growth in paramilitary and military capability of the Syrian Kurd fighters 
But they, of course, are very useful as far as the United States is concerned because they regard them as the best of the ground troops opposing ISIS in Raqqa. So that's the real complication. And essentially, there's a kind of tightrope to be walked between trying to use the Kurdish fighters for the United States' own purposes and trying to ensure that Turkey does not get so riled about it that you end up with more airstrikes on the Kurds and in, in, uh, eventually maybe even friendly fire incidents with the Americans too. If we take this back to, to a report about a deployment of an aircraft carrier, movements of ships around the, around the world at the moment, uh, we've seen a Type 45 destroyer, HMS Daring, headed, to, headed towards the Black Sea. This uh, Is anything to do with HMS 7 uh, seeing off the Korolev uh, this week in the English Channel? It's possible. I mean, it's not clear why the Ministry of Defence has decided to do that. It's a kind of show of strength. It's nice to know that, in fact, that a Type, type 45 is fully operational, given all the Ooh, troubles of the yes. mark. At least it's not going to the very warm waters of the Gulf. But the point about this is it's a decision by... Britain, I think probably allied to the United States to up the ante a bit. There's been a very strong reaction from some Russians uh, saying that this is an unnecessary provocation. But as far as the British are concerned, it's a kind of tit-for-tat for what the Russians have been doing. The problem is that nobody seems to be capable of standing back and seeing that, you know, when you do one symbolic thing, the other side has to do a similar thing. And that's when things can ratchet up. I don't think it'll happen in the Black Sea, but it's just a further cause for concern. Sitrep with Still to come, Made in China, the homemade aircraft carrier is launched. And how did the Army-Navy rugby match become the biggest fixture in forces sport? America says it plans to activate a missile defence system in South Korea within days and tighten economic sanctions against North Korea. The Trump administration says it doesn't want to depose North Korea's regime, but it must halt its nuclear programme. US senators have attended a special briefing at the White House yesterday. Simon Marks from Feature Story News joins us now from Washington. Uh, Simon, good to speak to you today. Uh, senators briefed at the White House. This is unusual, isn't it? Very very, very unusual. And this is not the end of the affair either, Kate. The White House says that they may soon brief the entire House of Representatives as well. Uh, it is not unusual, of course, for a president to travel to Capitol Hill for consultation with lawmakers. But it is very unusual for the White House to say to the entire U.S. Senate, come on over, the Secretary of State, the Defence uh, Secretary, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they all want to brief you uh, about the very dangerous situation situation that the Trump administration argues uh, is developing in the Korean Peninsula. On the one hand, this was a very practical briefing uh, for members of Congress about the new thinking that's taking place within the Trump administration uh, over what to do about North Korea. On the other hand, of course, this was designed to send a message to the North Korean leadership that North Korea is very much on Donald Trump's front burner. And message received? Well, message certainly delivered uh, in the form of the United States saying that it is thinking uh, about activating that THAAD missile defence system uh, in South Korea within days. They had said previously that they wouldn't activate it uh, until much later in the year. As to whether that message has been received and believed, well, that's a bigger question because, remember, this is the White House uh, that over a week ago said that the USS Carl Vinson was heading to the Korean Peninsula 
to safeguard America's interests in the region. Several days later, it became apparent that, in fact, the USS Carl Vinson had been sailing in a completely Indeed. opposite direction. So how much of this North Korea believes, that I think is an open mm, question. Interesting to speculate on that. Uh, Professor Paul Rogers, just tell us a bit more about this terminal high-altitude area defence system. It's pretty controversial in the region, isn't it? It is. It started off in the 1980s, got a huge boost in the 90s because of the fears about the Iraqi Scuds. There was an extraordinary incident during that war when a Scud narrowly missed a huge munitions dump uh, at, a, 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 at a Persian Gulf port. Uh, with a lot of American warships in the vicinity. And that really worried the Americans because it could have set up a huge blast and perhaps even changed the course of the war. So this kind of ability to uh, basically shoot down a fairly long range, but certainly not into continental missile, so, is what that is about. And the US says it is needed because it needs to protect South Korea and its interests. That's right. But the problem is that that may be the case. It may be effective at that. But the Chinese are very concerned about it, not so much because of the missile, but because of an extremely accurate long-range radar system which goes with it. And the Chinese see this as essentially the Americans have an opportunity to forward base a very sophisticated radar system which can also spy on them. And so this is unfortunate because in a sense the United States needs China if it's going to get some sort of settlement over North Korea which does not involve a major confrontation. Mm. Admiral Harry Harris, US Pacific commander, has said they want to bring King Jong-un to his senses, not to his knees. I mean, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of what you inverted commas saber rattling going on at the moment. Has enough attention been given to what value diplomacy can be given, given in line with the sanctions? I don't think it has. And I mean, I think the problem is that this is a very different American administration from Obama and to some extent even Bush. If you go back to George W. Bush's first State of the Union address in January 2002, that was when he sort of codified the idea of the axis of evil and North Korea was part of that. And ever since then, the North Koreans have assumed that the United States wants to get rid of the regime. They weren't quite so worried during the Obama era because he was playing it more diplomatically. But now they're really getting almost paranoid because the, the Trump administration is making it clear that something has to change. I don't mm. think there's any chance of actually getting the North Koreans to climb down because they basically would not trust any Western state if they gave up their nuclear potential. All right, Simon Marks, um, Donald Trump is approaching his 100th day as president. An important milestone? Well, it is an important milestone. I mean, Donald Trump dismisses it. He says it means nothing, but of course he wants uh, all his grades to be A grade uh, as people inevitably decide how he's done over the course of the last 100 days because uh, every American president knows that the first 100 days will be judged not just on the 100th day, but then by historians uh, as a measure of just how much success any particular president was enjoying. He argues he's racked up more accomplishments than any previous president in American history. That is simply demonstrably hmm. not true. Every key area that he has tried to address uh, has been met with less than success. He failed uh, in his attempt to reform Obamacare. He failed in his attempt to close America's borders to citizens from seven predominantly Muslim countries. He's failed in his attempt to secure funding for the border wall that he wants to build uh, between the United States and Mexico. He's failed in his attempt to withdraw uh, uh, federal funding from so-called sanctuary cities where refugees can seek sanction. Uh, sanction 
sanctuary <laughs> if uh, they find federal agents uh, going after them. And he's also failed to make appointments. And picking up on what Professor Rogers was just saying about North Korea, to engage in diplomacy, you need diplomats. Yes. There mm. are thousands of positions that have not been filled here. And within the last few hours, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has said that many of them will not be filled until the latter period of 2018 at the earliest. Mm. I don't think I'm going to see you, Simon, at any press briefings by Sean Spicer, given what you've just said. Uh, Professor Rogers, what about the Europeans? How are they seeing his first 100 days? I think some of them support him, but most, it's bemusement. I mean, Simon's absolutely spot on. You know, it's just Trump is not succeeding in what he intended to do. And some of his really keen supporters already getting worried. Some of them are saying it's a conspiracy theory by the establishment to thwart him at every stage. But I think the Europeans really, there's a lot of bemusement because this is not the kind of presidency they're used to. And also, I think Simon is absolutely right about the appointments. There's a real worry in Europe that the United States is losing its diplomatic edge. Uh, And I think this is something which is going to stay with the Europeans for some time. Simon, just briefly, what's the next big thing coming from Donald Trump? Well, tax reform, of course, is underway here. He suddenly and very hastily ordered his staff to put a tax reform policy together, which uh, they've just unveiled here. Uh, The staff were not expecting to get that done again until much later in the year, and they've uh, clearly thrown this proposal together. Now they have to begin the process of working it through uh, the US Congress. Donald Trump is obviously hopeful that that will help turn his fortunes around. Uh, But, you know, if reforming Obamacare was complicated tax reform is even harder. All right, Simon Marks in Washington, thank you. Now, China has launched its first Chinese-manufactured aircraft carrier. The as-yet unnamed ship has won't be fully operational until 2020. Professor Paul Rogers, this is their second carrier, isn't it? It is. They've got one uh, which is actually a very modified version of a carrier that they bought from Ukraine, a Soviet-era one, and that has been refitted. It was put into commission in 2012, but they've used it largely as a training carrier to learn how to actually operate an aircraft carrier. Historically, it's been fascinating. Over the last 30 years, the Chinese bought up an old Australian aircraft carrier. I think it was the the Melbourne. And they bought up a a couple of uncompleted Soviet carriers. And they use that really to work out how aircraft carriers were actually constructed. The Melbourne was cut up for scrap. The two ex-Soviet ones, I think one is a theme park and another is a hotel. But the point is, this is all about getting their own knowledge. Because this, as you say, is a domestic carrier. And it's fascinating to watch. It's quite a powerful ship, but it's basically a a helicopter carrier with an enhanced capability, rather like a much bigger version of the old Invincible class. Mm. Uh, But it's, it's an interesting development, and I think there will be more to come. Probably what China wants to do is ultimately, over the next 10 years, deploy or have in service uh, three modern carriers so they could actually have one at sea at virtually any time. I very much doubt they will go further than that but it does illustrate that over what a 30 or so year period they've slowly but surely decided that they will have carrier-borne air power. So what does it tell us about uh, China's military strategy going forward? Well they see themselves as a major regional power, a very serious regional power. Uh, They certainly are becoming the largest navy in the region and that's larger than 
the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force, which we tend to forget is a pretty powerful navy in its own right. The Chinese do not see themselves as a global power. They certainly want to extend through to the uh, Indian Ocean, and they have taken part in one of the anti-piracy uh, patrols in, in the western Indian Ocean, the Arabian Sea, and been a successful part of a combined operation. But they see themselves as a regional power. The trouble, of course, is the United States sees itself as a global power and really doesn't really want competition, even in Eastern Asia, in an area which in many ways is economically hugely important. How do you think China, going forward, will address its relationship, given what you've just outlined with the US? I think they're going to be feeling their way, much as we, we talked about the, the European attitudes to Trump. They're not quite sure how far they can deal with Trump. Um, what is interesting is you have the ongoing problems over there attempt to control more and more of the South China Sea. But what is interesting there is they've accompanied that over the last year with more of diplomatic and economic initiatives with some of the other states around the South China Sea. In other words, they're more or less saying, look, this is our patch, but that doesn't mean we're not going to work with you and treat you, if not as equals, then of people to be taken in in this wider sphere. And I think this is an interesting mix of diplomacy, economic aid and sheer military strength. And it is all about consolidating their position as the leading regional power for, well, for the best part of half the world. To put these issues that we've been talking about today into context, which do you think poses the greatest threat to the UK's security? Uh, well, if anything, I think it's what's happening in the Middle East. One has to say that. Uh, you know, you know, we've been fighting this war, what, for 15, but by 16 years? By that, I, I take it you don't think there's any chance of a nuclear war? Uh, I would hope not very much. But, I mean, this is one of the ma marvellous things, well, not marvellous, amazing things about this election. Uh, the Prime Minister, we know, would, quote, press the button. And then you had Michael Fallon saying, which politicians hardly ever say, that Britain does actually have a nuclear first-use policy. Now, that's really uh, been surprising. I'm surprised more people haven't commented on it. We knew it. The analysts knew this. But he's very bold about that. It's as though they really want to go full tilt on the defence side. But no, I do not think there's a risk of a nuclear war. But, you know, you do worry now about the kind of... Um, comments that are being made on, on really right across the world as a, a Russian commentator saying today that you know if uh, Britain ever did a strike on, on Russia Britain would be sort of wiped off the face of the earth that I think is, is very unfortunate rhetoric to put it mildly um, well, on that happy note, Professor Paul Rogers, good to speak to you as ever. Thank you very much for your time today. That's Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford. Well, it's the 100th Army-Navy rugby match at Twickenham on Saturday. Prince Harry will be there as patron of the Invictus Foundation and he's been talking about it with his friend, former Army captain and now GB Paralympian, Dave Henson. I've only ever been once. Have you? Yeah, yeah. And, they, and, and we lost. I say we, the Army <laughs> lost, which was like, yeah. why, why even bother coming anymore? And I was surrounded by people who probably had far, far too many beers as well. Yeah. Now, the Army-Navy uh, Army match is 80,000 people. A huge TV audience, yeah. partnership with Sky. Um, you know what? What does that that whole that whole aspect? I suppose is is a not only a huge social event, but a chance for veterans and and serving personnel to to meet up and have a beer and, and have a bit of a catch up. Absolutely, we, you know, you and I have talked both in private and in public about the armed forces being a family, yeah. and. It, it's never truer a display of that than when you get to, to Army Navy. I, okay, I know it's Army Navy, but it is a big match and it's a massive community of people coming together, all with that shared background. 
Well, the Prince is looking forward to it. So is BFBS Sports Editor John Knighton, who's here in the studio. Hello, John. Hi, Kate. How, did the, how, did, the, yeah, how did the fixture come about? Well, it, it really goes back to the very beginnings of the RFU and the, and the, and the Army and Navy had their own football, rugby football unions, uh, developing in very different ways. The Navy very much, rugby was a game for the officers. The Army had a very sort of far-thinking uh, man in charge there, Major Birdie Partridge, who wanted to include rugby uh, for all the ranks, so for officers and men to play together. And basically this game really came ab about because of that, to bring everyone together. Uh, that first game, February the 27th, 1907, it was actually played at Queen's Club, which we know better now, obviously, as a tennis venue. Um, and it finished 15-14 to the Navy. And funnily enough, the Army captain was a Royal Marine. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> why, why is the rugby the game of the forces? That's a very good question. I mean, I think that, you know, all sports are really popular in the forces. We, I mean, a lot of people say, well, football surely is number one. The army, the seventh, the 117th army football final was played last night, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, with one Yorks uh, beating 36-3-2. Um, and football has been going for a long time. That was 117 years of army football. So all of them have got big traditions. But I think that, that point about... Rugby being so inclusive as a sport and regiments and units, the the Navy have in, introduced rugby all around the world when ships are put into ports in the, in their time, and I think that really is why rugby is such a game. Is it, it really brings everyone together? And how how big a deal is this match on Saturday? Oh, it's massive. You know, if you if you drive down the M25, you'll see the big road sign saying um, "Expect traffic delays on the M3." Major rugby game at Twickenham. That's the Army Navy game. Now you only ever get that for internationals when England are playing. Uh, it's, it's the biggest friendly rugby game in the world. And who's going to win, John? <laughs> well, <laughs> Putting a bet on? Uh, last year, of course, the game ended in a draw, 29 all. There have only ever been four draws in the history of this competition. The Army have won 60, the Navy have won 35. The Army are really focused. They haven't won this competition uh, for three years. My money probably just on the Army. You say it now, John. And thank you very much. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to Professor Paul Rogers and all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. I'll be back same time next week, as will our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Thanks for listening. From me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. Adventure